All right. Good morning, everyone. How are you today? Awesome. If you are here live or if you're joining us online this morning, whether that's Facebook Live or our website or you're out in the concourse or maybe in overflow, we're just grateful that you're here this morning. And those of you that are here live in this service, can I just commend you and thank you? Because uh, as I look out from my vantage point, there are not many empty seats which means you guys are doing a fantastic job of scooting in uh, and allowing people that, that are coming maybe a couple minutes late into the service. Uh, and I know that's not always the most comfortable thing, but it's necessary and it's gonna become more necessary uh, as we continue to grow and move toward building expansion. So thank you for your willingness to do that, especially in this service. As you just saw, we are continuing a series. It's called, That's a Great Question. Every week we take a, a question related to a cultural issue or a biblical topic and, and uh, we address that and answer the question. Um, the question that we're answering today is, does God choose who gets saved? Does God choose who gets saved? Let's pray. Jesus, help us this morning to understand your heart, your love, your truth. Holy Spirit, we desperately need you to guide us and lead us in theological topics. So I pray you'd help us today in Jesus' name, amen. So the, the emotional side of our faith is really important. It's the emotional side of our faith where we feel or experience God's love, God's peace, God's joy, and, and we're emotional people. So we love to lean into the emotional side of our faith. But the intellectual side of our faith is more important than the emotional side of our faith because, <clears throat> excuse me, the intellectual side of our faith determines the emotions that we experience. Uh, theology determines emotion. Let me give you an example. So because uh, Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that we were made right with God or accepted by God on the basis of faith and not human works, we have peace with God. Not only a relational peace, but an experiential peace. We can experience the love of God because of theology, because we recognize uh, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. When we realize that scripture says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that we are constantly loved by our Father in heaven. We can know that love, but then we can experience that love. So, so our, our intellectual side of faith is really more important and really drives the emotional side of faith. The, one of the things that frustrates, not just frustrates me is a strong word, kind of uh, disappoints me a little bit, is that the church has desired much more of an emotional experience with the Lord than an intellectual one, not realizing that it's our theology that determines our emotion. And so we like sermons that make us laugh, that make us feel good, that give us joy, but we don't recognize that theology, the intellectual side of faith, really drives all of that. So we're gonna dig in a little bit this morning uh, and talk a little bit about theology. There, there's, a, there's a theological conversation that's 400 years old that you may not even be aware of. It's called Calvinism versus Arminianism. And it's, it's centered around the issue or the doctrine of election. Election means to choose. So the question is, does God choose us to be saved or do we choose God? It, it can be said a little bit differently. Um, is salvation the result of God's sovereign choice of us or is it man's free will? Now the, the, the debate is named after two Christian teachers. 
John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius. Calvin was born in 1509. Arminius was born in 1560. They never met. They never knew each other. Calvin was a French theologian. Arminius was a Dutch pastor. Calvin, in his teachings, emphasized the sovereignty of God in almost all of his teaching. His followers who came after him wanted to summarize his teaching on salvation, particularly election or this issue of choosing. Um, so they, they created an acronym, a five-letter acronym called TULIP, to summarize Calvin's teachings on salvation and the doctrine of election. Well, Ar Arminius came later, and as he began, began to be aware of Calvin's teaching on salvation and, and the doctrine of election, he disagreed with it. And so he responded to that and kind of came up with his own doctrine for salvation and, and election. So what I want to do this morning is I want, to, I want to share both sides of the debate, and I want to tell you what our church believes. How many of you know it's important if you attend a church to know what that church believes? So I want to share that with you this morning. Many of you come from Reformed backgrounds, and you're going to side maybe on the, the Calvinistic side, because that was your upbringing. Others of you may have grown up in a Wesleyan tradition or a Baptist tradition where they, they, they taught more Arminius theology. So I want to just share with you kind of both sides, and then we'll talk about what our church believes. The foundation of the debate is really starting with Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Let's read that this morning. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us, they chose us, <clears throat> just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. What does it mean that God chose us in Christ before the world began. What does it mean that way back before anything was created, before you were born, that God chose you in Christ? That's what we want to talk about today. Two views on the doctrine of election, Calvinism and Arminianism. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through Calvin's five points on this doctrine, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, and we'll give you Arminius's response. And then I'll, at the end, I want to share just a few concerns. Here we go. The T in TULIP stands for total depravity. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Uh, this is Calvin's side. And you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Total depravity means that man's sin made it impossible for man to know God. Uh, we were darkened in our understanding blinded to the reality. Being dead in sin means that man doesn't have the ability or the capacity in and of himself to have faith or to believe. So everyone is dead in sin, we just read that scripture, but God gives only the elect or only the chosen the gift of faith, the ability to believe in him. So verses like John 6, would seem to support that. For no one, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me, regenerates them, makes them alive, gives them the gift of faith. And on the last day, 
I will raise them up, total depravity. We don't, we don't even have the ability to respond to God because we are dead in sin. God has to give us the gift of faith. God has to regenerate us in order for us to even know God. Well, Arminius comes along and he has a little different thought and that is partial depravity. Now, he believes that man is separated from God by sin and definitely that man, because of that separation, cannot save himself. We need a savior. We need Jesus Christ. And it's also the Holy Spirit who reveals Jesus excuse me, to us. But Arminius would say God gives everyone the ability to believe, not just the elect. We'll touch on that a little bit more when we talk about limited atonement in a minute. So God gives everyone the ability to either choose Jesus or to reject Jesus. So John 1, verses 11 to 13, Jesus, it, John says, Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, and they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. According to that scripture, it seems we have freedom to either accept Christ or reject Christ. He came to his own. He came to the Jewish people. They rejected him. But to everyone that accepted him, to everyone that put their faith in him, to everyone that responded positively to Jesus and surrendered to them, he gave the authority or the power or the right to become children of God. Total depravity. The you in tulip is unconditional election. This is Calvin's doctrine. God elects or chooses people to salvation before they're born. And this election or choice has nothing to do with any human action. Nothing we did. It's not even faith. It's not even faith because that, they would consider that to be a human action. So Romans 9 verses 10 to 13 says, not only that, but there was also Rebecca. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice or election, would stand, not because of works of Jacob and Esau, but because of God who calls or chooses, it was said to her, God determined the older would serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved. But Esau, I hate it. So it's God's sovereign choice of who is saved. And we are not to argue with God's choice. We're not to argue with the wisdom of God. We're, we're not to say, how could you do this to people? Because we don't know the mind of God. So continuing in Romans 9, verse 16. So then it does not depend on the person who wants it, nor the one who runs, but on God. Say on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason, I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. So then God has mercy on whom he, what? Who he wants, who he chooses, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? On the contrary, who are you you foolish person who answers back to God. The, the thing or the clay molded will not say to the potter or the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Does not the potter have a right over the clay 
to make some of the uh, to make from the same lump one object or person for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. So, so Calvin would say, no one deserves to be saved because of sin, total depravity, but God is merciful. So God in his mercy chooses to save some instead of letting everyone go to hell. So God is merciful. We, we can't talk back to the, to the one that created us. It, it's his, he can do whatever he wants with the people that he created. But again, salvation or election is not on the basis of faith on the part of humans. Arminius comes along and he says, no, I don't believe in, in unconditional election. I believe in conditional election. In other words, God knows everything before it happens. He knows every choice every person will ever make even before they're born. God doesn't live just in the present. God lives above time. So, so his knowledge is always present, even though things have not yet happened in the future. God sees the beginning from the end. God knows everyone who will freely respond to his love and mercy before they're created. So if you've made a decision to follow Christ, God knew about that decision before you were born. God was aware. He had foreknowledge of that decision. So Arminius would say election, choosing on God's part before the foundation of the world, is conditioned upon faith. It's the result of human will. You freely chose Christ. God recognized that you would do that, and therefore you became his chosen or elect. Romans 8, 28 to 30. This is the Arminius side. We, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. For those whom God foreknew, say foreknew. No, that means to know in advance. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son predestined us to salvation and to be changed and transformed into the image of Christ <clears throat> so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and these whom he predestined he also called those whom he called he also justified those he justified he also glorified uh, Arminius would point to first Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 as well Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those residing as alien as strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father, chosen or elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. He would say God chose every person he knew would have faith in Jesus before he created them. We are chosen before we're born. It's possible that God chose you before the foundation of the world in his foreknowledge, seeing ahead, knowing that you were making that decision. It's not randomly by God. Election is based, this is again Arminius, election is based on God's foreknowledge. We are chosen by God as a result of freely choosing to trust in Christ. The L in tulip is limited atonement. Calvin would say Christ died only for the elect. Jesus didn't die for the whole world. He didn't die for all sinners. He only died for those that he chose. So they would point to verses like Matthew 1, 21. She, the mother of Jesus, Mary, would give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people. And they say that represents the people that God has chosen. He will save his people from their sins. 
And then Acts chapter 2, verse 39, this, the promise of salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children, all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Again, Calvin would say it's limited to the elect, those that God chooses and those that God calls to himself. So God calls some to salvation, but not others. And that leads to what's called double predestination. Single predestination would be God chose some to salvation. Double predestination, the opposite in that is God not only chose some to salvation, but that means he chose others for damnation. He chose others not to be saved. So he chose some to be saved and then also some not to be saved. Um, God chooses some for heaven and some for hell. Arminius comes along and he says, no, I don't believe in limited atonement. I think the scripture teaches unlimited atonement. Everyone has the opportunity to put their trust in Jesus. Everyone has free will. Because Jesus died for the whole world, Jesus didn't just die for the elect. Remember, limited atonement, Jesus only died for the elect, not the whole world. So Arminius comes along, he says, what about John 3.16? John 3.16 says, God so loved who? The whole world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever, everyone that believes in him. Uh, 1 John 2.2 and he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation. That means the atonement or the sacrifice for our sins. John is a Christian when he writes this. He's writing on behalf of the church, the people of God. He says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not only for ours only, but also for the sins of who? The whole world. So Arminius comes along and says, wait, it's not a limited atonement. Jesus came to die for, for everybody. He points to 1 Timothy 2.4. Paul says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed but wants everyone to what? Repent and come to salvation. Okay, So again, Calvin, limited atonement, Arminius, unlimited atonement. The I in tulip is irresistible grace. That means those who choose, I'm sorry, those God chooses uh, who are in total depravity, he chooses them and he removes their blindness so they can see his glory. And when they see his glory, they will not resist it. When, when, when God regenerates a person by the Holy Spirit, gives them the gift of faith, when they see him in all of his glory, they will not reject him. Irresistible grace. Everyone who is chosen by God will choose Jesus when they're regenerated. Irresistible grace means we can't choose to reject his grace. And so again, from, from the Arminius side, it seems that we don't have free will here, uh, that we somehow automatically will do that even if, I guess, we don't want to or we're programmed to want to do that. Arminius comes along and says, no, I'd rather, I'd rather talk about provenient grace or free will. God reveals himself to everyone and gives everyone a chance to respond to his love. Grace isn't limited to the elect. We become God's elect when we choose to follow Christ. Free will is maintained because everyone can either choose Christ or reject Christ. And the P in tulip on the Calvinistic side is the perseverance of the saints. What that means is those chosen by God will stay faithful to the end because God called them and he by his sovereignty will preserve them. No one chosen by God will ever fall away. Calvinists would say if someone seemed to profess Christ and then fall away later in life, it's an evidence that they were never saved. They weren't chosen by God if they fall away later. 
Arminius calls it the security of the believer. And, and our followers of Arminius have a few different views on this. They're not locked into one. Some believe salvation can be lost by renouncing your faith. Uh, uh, Wesley, uh, Wesleyan tradition thinks you, you, you can lose your salvation. You can be saved and then you can lose your salvation. Some say once saved, always saved. Security in, our security is in Christ. Others say if they turn from their faith, like the Calvinists believe later in life, it's just an evidence they were never saved. They, they were not saved. All right, those are the two sides of the debate. And, and our church, our Baptist, now, now historically, the, the Baptist church has been fairly split on this. Some Baptist churches follow Calvin, some Baptist churches follow Arminius. Our church tradition doesn't embrace the five points of Calvinism. So I wanna end this morning just by sharing some concerns related to Calvin's doctrine of election. The first is this. Calvinism suggests that God's, God loves only a small number of people. That God loves only a small number of people. So the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell University, they, they monitor the, the Christian global population. How many people in the world are Christians? How many people identify as Christians? There's over 8 billion people in the world. They estimate 2.5, 2.6 billion people identify as Christians. That's around 30%. Around 30% of the world's population identify with Christ. Uh, that number has gone up, or that percentage has gone up significantly since 1900. Some say it's almost tripled. In other words, in the last 100 plus years, the, the, the number of Christians that are, that are hearing the gospel and being saved has really uh, exponentially gone up. So let's say 30% in, in past history might have been less than that. So, so if only 30% of the global population identify with Christ, my question is, did God choose to send 70% of those he created to hell? So we can talk about the love of God, a loving God. We can say, if God is a loving God, why does he allow evil in the world? If God is a loving God, why does he allow sickness and suffering? If God is a loving God, why does he allow all these things to go on? Well, you know the question that I have? If God is a loving God, before anybody did anything good or bad, why did he choose 70% of the people he created to go to hell? How, how is that love? That he only chooses about 30% of the people that he creates to go to heaven. See, the scripture says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Number two, Jesus was angry and hurt when people rejected him. Well, this makes no sense. Why would Jesus be mad or sad if someone rejected him if they weren't chosen for salvation in the first place? If Jesus knew that they weren't saved, why would he be angry if they did something that they had no control over? If God had already rejected them. And that's what we see in scripture. Jesus getting both, both mad and sad when people didn't respond to him. So there's a story, a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 14, it's a parable of a, of a guy that threw a big party, he threw a big banquet. And it says that he started by inviting all of his close friends. And he invited them to this banquet. Well, in the parable, the close friends represent the nation of Israel. Jesus comes first to the nation of Israel and offers them salvation, but they reject him. So in the parable, he goes to his friends and he, and he sends his servants out and he says, hey, go out and tell everybody the banquet's ready. They need to come. So the servants go out and everyone starts making excuses. Some, some say, I just got married. I've got to take care of my farm. I, 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 someone's sick. I, I've got to do, I can't, I can't come to your banquet. 
And they make excuses, and that's where we pick it up in the story. Luke 14, verse 21. The servant returned and told his master what they said, the excuses they made. His master was furious that they had rejected him and said, quickly, go into the streets, go into the alleys of the town and, and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. A couple questions here. This says that the original group were invited, but they turned it down. If they weren't chosen, why would they be invited? Second thing is, why would Jesus get mad? He, he's the person, he's the, the party giver in this story. Why would he be furious? Because he loves them and he wants them to be saved. And they're turning down his invitation. And he knows what turning down that invitation is going to result in, in their life. And he doesn't want any to perish. He wants all to come to a knowledge of truth and be saved. Jesus is also hurt when people reject him. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I wanted to gather your children together like a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But what? You wouldn't, you wouldn't let me. Man, I, I wanted to gather you. I wanted to protect you. I wanted to love you. And you said no. Breaks his heart. Like it breaks his heart if any of you say no to him. He wanted to just gather you, protect you, love you, be your shepherd. You said no. Why would that hurt Jesus if he knew that you were never chosen in the first place? How could that possibly anger him or hurt him? if it wasn't God's plan for your life. Number three, Jesus didn't come to seek and save the elect. Luke 10, 19, 10, the son of man came to seek and save those who are what? Who are what? Who are the lost? Who's lost? Tell me. Everyone is lost. Every person ever born into the world is lost. Isaiah said, Isaiah said, all of us like sheep have turned away. Each of us has sought his own way, but, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. All of us like sheep are lost. Jesus didn't come to seek and save the elect. Jesus came to seek and save all of us because we're all lost. Number four, God doesn't condemn people for what they can't control. If we don't have the ability to choose Christ because of total depravity, how can God condemn us for that? How can God condemn us for a decision that was made that we had no control over? Total depravity means we can't choose Jesus unless God chooses us. Would God condemn us for what we can't control? How is that justice? Scripture says that God is the perfect judge. God is perfectly just. How is it just if he condemns you for something you had no control over? How could it be fair if he condemns you for not choosing him when he didn't give you the ability to choose him in the first place? Number five, Calvinism eliminates all urgency to share the gospel. If everyone that God chooses or elects is guaranteed salvation, irresistible grace, they will not turn away from God. That means they're going to be saved. And that means there's no urgency for me as a Christian to share the gospel. You know why? Someone will do it. I mean, if, if God chose that person in my relational world to be saved and I don't share the gospel with them and they're going to be saved, what's going to happen? 
God will direct someone into their life to share the gospel. I'm off the hook. There's no, there's no compelling reason, I mean, other than God wants us to share the gospel, but hey, if I don't do it, it'll get done. Do you know Jesus said just the opposite about urgency related to the gospel? Here's what he said in John 4, 35. Jesus said, don't say that there are still four months and then the harvest is going to come. Behold, I tell you, look, look around, lift up your eyes and observe the fields. They're, they're white for harvest now. Now, do I have any farmers in here? Raise your hand, be proud. Farmers? Now, if I'm right, harvest is the, is the easiest time of year. Is that right? It's the most kickback time of year. I mean, you watch TV, you get your soda, you get your chips, you watch football, right? No, it's the craziest time of the year. If we don't get those crops out of the field, what's going to happen? They're going to rot. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus talks about evangelism and the harvest, he, I'm sorry, when he talks about evangelism and sharing the gospel, he talks about the harvest. Why? There's urgency. There's people in your relational world that have not yet heard the gospel and God puts it on you to share it with them urgently. You don't know what's gonna happen, friend. They could die tomorrow. They could die tonight. They could die next week. And if you haven't shared the gospel with them, there's no guarantee. That's what drives us as Christians. That's, what, that's why there are missionaries because there are people, in, Christians that say, I've gotta go and share the gospel with people that have never heard. Because what happens if they don't hear? Calvinism eliminates urgency to share the gospel. Number six, no one wants to marry a robot. So 43 years ago, I asked beautiful Shirlene if she would marry me. Defying the odds of all reason and logic, <laughs> defying any common sense, she said yes. I offered her a lot of money, but that wasn't the issue. I, I couldn't offer her good looks. I couldn't offer her a great personality. I couldn't what, what if I had the power to program her heart to love me? What would be the joy of marriage if she had to love me because I created her to do that? No, friends, I'm so glad. I have a wife that despite who I am, chose me, loves me. And God gives you the choice. The good news of Jesus is preached to you. The love of God is presented to you. Paul talked about Christ willingly going to a cross because of his love for you. Now you have a choice. He wants a bride that chooses to love him. He, like me, he doesn't want to marry a robot. And so he didn't create robots. He created people with free will to accept his love or reject his love. Which have you done today? Have you accepted the love of Christ? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Because unlike Calvinism, which teaches your eternal destiny is not in your hands, it's only in God's hands. We think scripture teaches that your eternal destiny 
is your choice. God's done everything he can and laid it before you and invited you to the banquet. The question is, will you choose to come? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you're here today and you'd like to receive Christ, we say it's as easy as A, B, C. A, you have to admit you've sinned. Your sin has separated you from God, made it impossible to know him. B, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, died on the cross to take your sin. And C, you have to surrender your life to his leadership. Commit to following Christ. Would you like to do that today? Pray this with me. Jesus, I admit that I've sinned. I've broken your law. I can't can't fix it, but you came to fix it. You came to go to the cross for me. I'm so grateful. Would you forgive my sin this morning? Would you save me? Would you give me the peace today to know that I'm in a right relationship with God because of my faith, not my works? And Jesus, I surrender to you, your love, your mercy, your kindness, to your leadership. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, if you prayed that this morning and you meant it, we're going to have some some folks up here to pray with you after the service. Would you stand with me today? Now, as you leave this morning, I want to ask you this question. Is there an urgency in your heart today for the harvest? Is there an urgency in your heart for the people in your relational world that don't yet know Jesus? What if this week you acted on that urgency and told somebody Christ cared about them and wanted them to be saved? Have a great week.